1: This episode contains difficult stories of persecution by the police.
2: February 13th, 1976. The cottage on the third floor of the department store in Oxford Street is very dangerous at the moment. Staff or plainclothes police watching everyone and looking under cubicle doors. I didn't go to the car park because I don't really go cottaging.
1: This is a logbook entry from February 5th, 1977. Just received a phone call from St Austell in Cornwall. The caller informed me that 28 men had been arrested for gross indecency there. There was a police raid at a party and all the men were taken to the police station, stripped, searched, and some kept overnight. The logbooks are literally littered with people calling switchboard, reporting the countless police raids or undercover police officers infiltrating all these cottaging sites and gay venues.
0: Talking about this topic for me is kind of like really interesting and tense because it always makes me question, would I go to a toilet which kind of smells of poo and piss? Maybe there might be police people there. What would I have done to get sex? (laughs)
1: You're listening to The Logbooks: stories from Britain's LGBTQ plus history and conversations about being queer today.
0: In partnership with Switchboard, the LGBT plus helpline. I'm Adam Smith.
1: I'm Tash Walker. Episode four, Pretty Policeman.
0: The theme for this episode, Tash, is the police.
1: So Adam, what exactly is cottaging and cruising?
0: They're both... Random sex acts between men in public places. Cruising is the activity of looking for that and then finding that. And cottaging is basically the same thing, but it's in a specific location which is known for that. And that tends to be public loo's and certain laybys, that kind of thing. These logbook entries are from the late seventies, when sex between men had been partially decriminalised in 1967, but there were pretty strict restrictions on that activity still. So the act in 1967 decriminalized anal sex between men, but it was only between two men. So if you had more than one partner at the same time, then you were still breaking the law. And it was also only in private. So it was in a private residence. If you were in a block of flats and you were having sex with one man in one flat, that was not considered a private residence if there were people in other flats in the same block. So you had to be in a house, a detached house, in the middle of nowhere with one other person. And you also both had to be above the age of 21. So anal sex, we say, was only partially decriminalised because the age of consent was not the same for as for, for gay sex as it was for heterosexual sex. And because it had all these extra conditions around it about privacy and things.
1: And then the age of consent was reduced further in 1994 down to 18. And then again in 2000 down to 16, which was around the same time as we turned 16. That's right,
0: yeah, I turned 16 in 2000, and so that was the year that I was able to have sex legally, although I have to say I did not, and I did not have sex for a very long time after that. That's another story.
1: In this episode, we're going to hear from a guy chased out of a public toilet for trying to have sex, a lawyer who used to defend people that got caught cruising, and a former police officer who used to check laybys for men having sex.
3: I once got stopped when I was about 18. My name's Julian House. I'm 63 years old this year. Oxford Circle. It was always high risk because it was quite a small cottage. It's by Oxford Circus, uh, you know, the busiest intersection in, you know, London. And uh, I was down there and I was just, you know, uh, somebody was waving their willy at the urinal and I, I looked over and they went to put their hand out and I went to put their hand out and then suddenly the person next to me said, You're nicked. <laughs> so as we walked up the stairs, right, they both were behind me and they hadn't shackled me or, you know, like so we're, we're going up, so we're, you know, we're going to take you. So I just belted it, dear. <laughs> but you know, a lot of people weren't so lucky at all.
0: This is a logbook entry from May the fifteenth, nineteen seventy-five. Last night raid on Heath behind Jack Straw's Castle Pub, twelve thirty to twelve forty-five a.m. Using women police as well. Almost everyone got away. Probably about fifty or more police involved.
1: This is a logbook entry from July 21st, 1975. Callerang to inform us that there is a definite purge on Holland Walk. Eight people arrested Friday night. Fined £40 each on Saturday morning. All pleaded guilty. But all other reports I've had indicate that there is nothing unusual in that. They do it every now and again. What are we going to do about it? Us gay people. I think it's interesting to reflect on what big impact the partial decriminalisation of homosexuality in 67 had on the arrest of people for this act pre and post that year.
0: Exactly, because we know that the police had a reaction to that decriminalisation, which was basically a backlash against it, as Neville tells us. There was a terrific public
2: backlash. Uh, unfortunately, the, the Commissioner of Police at that time, and this, this is common knowledge and has been commented on ad infinitum, they were absolutely horrified. They had good-looking young constables in plain clothes, of course, lurking about, literally. Uh, arrests were very, very frequent after the decriminalisation, not before. Uh, it was rather, all rather scary. Uh, you know, you were taken off Uh, you were told I've got a big torch in my pocket and if you make the slightest move to get away you'll get it across the back of your neck Uh, you were whistled in and you were told no, 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 no need to take on because this will all be over very shortly that was that but one got a criminal record
4: 1981, the reason I remember 81 so clearly is that was a year that the Gay Pride demonstration, and it was a demonstration, it wasn't a parade, was attacked by the police. It's a big, one of the biggest African National Congress demonstrations against apartheid was also taking place in London and West London the same day.
0: This is Terry Stewart, who shared with us his experience of the law against importuning, which is just chatting someone up for sex. His story about that so-called offence starts not long after the gay pride demonstration in 1981.
4: It was about a month later. Month later, maybe six weeks later, that I was in the the cottage on Charing Cross Road. It's at the back of the National Portrait Gallery, in the middle of the road. I think it's some sort of a tourist novelty shop now. These two policemen came in and they arrested me and they said they were taking me to Bow Street Police Station and charged me with importuning. And I was charged with importuning, I was let go, I wasn't held for any length of time. I appeared at, Magist- at Bow Street Magistrates' Court, pleaded not guilty, was uh, then referred to the Crown Court. I was found guilty of importuning and I was fined £20. The only evidence that was uh, presented to the judge was the statements of the both police officers, which was exactly the same. They've they've sat down and colluded with each other in the evidence, and I thought, well, you know, they're just lying through their teeth. My barrister did ask them, and I had asked them, how many times had they arrested people in that toilet over the last 12 months? And they said 500. So clearly it was their little honeypot.
1: A criminal record sticks with you, even after laws and social norms change.
0: We spoke to Alan, who is still living with his own record.
1: Alan wanted to share his story but preferred to stay anonymous, so here is an actor voicing his words.
0: I was
5: in a park at night with no one in sight apart from the chap who was with me. I like to call it admiring the beauties of nature in the park. Everybody knew how dangerous it was. Whatever happened, it wasn't going to happen to you. So when it did, it wasn't very nice. It was five minutes before the magistrates, but boy, did I get the lash of his tongue before a hefty fine. There are other magistrates around who took a very different view. And unfortunately, in those days, magistrates didn't have guidelines, they just did whatever the justice's manual said. Some would produce a maximum sentence. Others said, I can't see any bother here. Go away. Looking back, you think, stupid ass, won't you? Which is why I didn't hold too much of a beef against the pretty police at the time. I do now because it was entrapment. But at the time, I thought, I've lined myself up for this and I've got to swallow the medicine. The magistrate could have been less nasty, but that's the way it crumbles, and I think most people felt the same. There was a greater sense of hierarchy then. The police, the magistrates, there was more respect and fear. There was this hierarchy, this sense of law and order. You've just got to, you know, play the right sort of game whether you considered it right or wrong.
1: Throughout this time with the increase in the number of calls that were coming through to Switchboard reporting police raids or police attacks, Switchboard's role quickly started to become much more of an advice-giving service as to what to do if you were attacked, um, going on to specifically naming solicitors that you could get in contact with.
0: There's a piece of paper pasted into the logbook on September 14th, 1976, which is a typed it's on a it's clearly on a typewriter typed memo to volunteers about what they should do if the police actually started questioning them as volunteers of switchboard and it's entitled don't ask a policeman and it says in the event of the police uniform or plain clothes calling at the premises in pursuit of any inquiries the following courses of action should be adopted by the volunteer on duty and there's a whole list of things such as number one don't let them in unless they've got a warrant. And also, number three, if they've got a warrant, examine it, and if it's valid, let them in, but phone David Offenbach immediately. Also inform the chairperson. And number four is, you must not make any statement without David Offenbach present.
6: Uh, I'm David Offenbach. I'm a solicitor. I'm 75 years old. I was very active in the 1970s and 1980s uh, in representing people who were charged with gross indecency. This is an entry from the 1st of June, 1978. Um, a guy phoned to say he'd been charged with importuning after talking to a guy he knew outside the Colherne. He hadn't been in the pub, but had just been passing after walking away. A policeman came up to him and said, you're nicked. A la Sweeney. They seem quite pleased about this fact, and said he was the fifth that night. He's been taken to court on the 7th of June, so I gave him D. Offenbach's number. And well, this is a logbook entry from May the 25th, 1978. It's a call from two guys living in Woking who went to a pub in Guildford tonight. The pub is the Royal Oak, it's quite gay. They left and headed towards the rail station when two guys who had followed them out of the pub attacked them. Paul, the younger of the two, ran back to the pub as the guys ran off and got people to help to try and catch them with no result. His lover is 24 and the two are subsequently worried about reporting this matter to the police. That sounds like um, a fairly typical phone call the gaze which board would have received at the time and we would subsequently hear from the person who had made the phone call they wanted to come and see us as soon as possible and we tried always to make sure that the appointments were very quick and <clears throat> obviously people were very anxious um, about their careers uh, about their reputation uh, often about their family circumstances and what the consequences of a conviction for gross indecency um, would be. And most of these cases arose from the allegation that sexual activity has taken place in a public place. Um, it may be uh, in a lavatory or it could have been in a public park. Justin Gow, a barrister in private practice. In terms of the
4: gravity of being convicted for gross indecency or for indecent exposure, uh, you would lose your job. There was almost no job that would employ somebody who'd been convicted of that. In the old days, people were imprisoned for it for short periods because there's nothing quite as successful as stopping people being gay as locking them up with 500 other men.
3: For me, the, 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 the fear or the actuality of getting arrested would have not have been more than a minor inconvenience because I was already out... I was already, uh, didn't really care anyway. But for the majority of people who, uh, uh, who were in that situation, it might have, met, it would have definitely met, um, uh, uh, been in the, the local papers, you know, just the, the arrest. It would have often led to the end of their job. That's, you know, not just if they were a teacher or a youth worker or anything like that. That was, you know, working in the bank, being a a civil servant, working as a delivery driver. You know, any occupation.
4: For many people, it was almost the end of their lives. I mean, John Gilgood was caught cottaging. And I think he was fined five pounds. But it was for many years uh, he couldn't work properly. He was denied a knighthood for many many years and so the effect upon people grand or ordinary could be devastating
1: It's so difficult to hear that today and just think about what was going through those people's minds
0: And it also makes you think about what the police were really up to when they were doing it and how were they using their power to entrap people who were just wanting to have sex So that's why we spoke to a former police officer
7: the, the lay-bys, you know, from memory, one was on a busy road, one was on a, a, a dual carriageway. The one in particular I remember was on a, a quiet road, you know, like a, a, an A road, uh, but sort of early hours in the morning, late at night, not particularly busy, and not lit. Hi, I'm uh, Lorraine Moyer, I'm 56, and I'm a retired police officer. You would drive in and out. If no one was there, you would just drive in and out, and you would come back again, you know, if we weren't busy. There was always kind of a regular policing of them. And if there was a car in, you would stop the police vehicle, uh, you would get out, and you would question the driver as to to why um, they were in the the lay-by. Basically, at the end of the day, you know, Men were coming in to have sex. And I can remember one particular officer that um, I worked with was particularly, you know, focused on the reason that they were there, purely because, you know, we were identifying a particular offence and preventing them, individuals, from coming back and using that public space. I remember this one particular officer, you know, asked this chap to get out of the car and was really in his face, you know, I'm talking nose-to-nose, and being, you know, very intimidating, threatening to say that, you know, obviously I want your details, we're going to write and tell your family this is what you're doing. It was bullying. No doubt about it, it bullying. It was never professional.
6: Um, This is an entry from the 18th of July, 1975. A guy phoned had been caught in a cottage near St. Albans, North Orbital Road. It's a well-known cottage, apparently. There is a hole in the wall and a policeman on the roof. I suggest it often barks. The caller wanted it to be as quiet as possible, and he will write and let us know what ensues. He is not due to appear in court for two months. Often some of these conveniences had been sort of set up in a way or adapted in a way where it was more easy for the police to, uh, to convict. So if there were holes in the wall or if there were places where a police officer could, could be concealed, there would tend to be more cases from, from those conveniences than from others generally. Many of these cases, the evidence seemed to me to be very sketchy, you know, and when you looked at the evidence, you could see immediately flaws in the evidence. So if there was a case involving, like, a public convenience, you get the evidence in advance and you would have a look at it and you would ask the client what happened, did this happen, and if he said no, it didn't, something else happened, then you would have to go and inspect to see whether or not the layout would allow this. Because, remember, the prosecution have to prove the case beyond reasonable doubt. It's not for the defence to prove that the defendant is innocent. It's for the prosecutor to prove that the defendant is guilty beyond reasonable doubt. And so it is for the prosecution to make its case. But if we saw, for example, that actually the sight line from where the officer said he was standing... Uh, couldn't, you couldn't actually see what the officer claimed that he saw, then we would have a photographer there um, with photographs, and the photographer would come and give evidence and say, well, if
1: the
0: officer said that, then you couldn't see this. Look at the angles. almost sounds like a sport.
1: But it definitely wasn't. There was so much at risk.
0: Yeah, I mean sport, because it sounds from Lorraine that some of the police thought that going after men who were looking for sex with men was fun.
7: Every police station had a bar, after your night shifts, the bar was open. It, it was run by the police service. So it was a time then to discuss... And police, you know, police officers, don't get me wrong, police officers needed space to talk about some of the experiences they'd had whilst they were be policing because, you know, it can be quite stressful. But that said, within that environment, you know, it was a space where... Things were spoken about, about the gay community, men particularly, and it was laughed about. It was seen as a game. You know, there was so much testosterone going around, you know, but heterosexual testosterone. So when it came to going out on the late shifts and the night shifts and policing the laybys for the men that were, were cottaging, it was a way of asserting power. And I think... That's what was behind it. With police in the gay community, it carried a stronger message because it wasn't just about a message of actually this is illegal, it was a message that actually I don't like what you're doing as well.
0: One of the logbook entries here from May 29th, 1978. Goes two incidents reported to me last night of police arrests. One outside the Colhern at 1:10 a.m. Two police officers in plain clothes physically carried someone into a waiting car, which sped off at fast speed. And the other, which was more disturbing, was a plainclothes police officer in Tricky Dicky's disco at the Green Man last night, special disco for Bank Holiday Monday. The person who called now states that he went outside with the policeman and went down a back alley. As soon as he started undoing his fly, a police car turned up and carted him off to the Cannon Row police station, where they stripped him and forced him into a medical examination. I felt, if the caller was stating the truth, that something has to be done about it if police are infiltrating into discos.
7: And it makes me, you know, angry, thinking back to that time of focusing all their anger and intolerance and homophobic feelings towards men that were just trying to, you know, form relationships and meet in public. I used to feel really uncomfortable and want, and stood back from any action. You know, I'd never take the lead role because it, 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 it didn't feel right. You know, at that time, I was the only female on the shift. I felt as a lesbian, whilst for me I wasn't out, it didn't feel safe to come out, it wasn't safe to come out, that I was part of what was a service bullying a minority community and that's what I found really challenging, really, really difficult.
1: This is a logbook entry from July 9th, 1976. Caller, Sean Matthews, explained that he had just been released from Kensington Police Station after having been detained, along with some friends for some 36 hours. It seems the police rioted the flat yesterday lunchtime, 8th of July, 79, after receiving evidence, presumably that some of them were under 21. The caller, who is 16, told the police that he was a willing partner. From what I can gather, the police had no warrants when they raided and searched the flat. Documents, passports and diaries were taken. Perhaps something can be done on a point of issue to pressure the Home Office, etc. as to the absurdity of the law and the bad treatment of gay people when they land up in prison in cases such as this.
0: That logbook entry is particularly harrowing because it's so detailed with things like the police not having a warrant, with the caller saying that he was a willing partner, even though he was 16, which still would have meant that it was illegal because the age of consent then was 21. Um, Although now the age of consent is 16, of course. It just sounds like really, really awful treatment and you just can't imagine something like that happening now for someone who's having sex, having their diaries taken, their their place searched and all of that just for having sex.
1: Yeah, just for me, my initial reaction is just that your home being invaded and You know, I I can't imagine the levels of persecution and fear and anger that was sort of circulating at this time. And As someone who wasn't alive then, I can only understand it in the context of today and it just seems outrageous.
0: And bringing us up to today, let's return to Terry. You heard him talk earlier about being found guilty of importuning one of the offences that was frequently used by police to persecute men who had sex with men.
4: I went into a public toilet. I was by myself. I wasn't with anyone. And I'm convicted of an offence. I'm still carrying that offence 35 years later, 38 years later, simply down to the word of two police officers. So if there was a crime committed, the crime was committed by those two, lying about me, uh, allowing the, the court case to proceed on, on their, their dishonesty.
8: There are men living today with convictions and with cautions for offences like buggery, like gross indecency, but also like soliciting, like importuning, and all kinds of other crimes that were used to control same-sex sexuality. I'm Justin Bengry, and I teach queer history at Goldsmiths University of London. Those men live with those convictions and cautions, which can impact their opportunities for employment. It can impact opportunities for volunteering, if they're working with children, if they're working with any vulnerable groups. And many of them have suffered incredibly with the the consequences of those records sticking with them, sometimes decades after what they might have thought was a very small offense or something that would just be forgotten or something that only included a small fine.
4: Yeah, 38 years later. I still have a conviction on my record. So if I go for a job or if I go to join an organisation that wants to know do I have a criminal record then I won't get past the front door because it's still there. After 2012 when the Home Office decided they were going to change the rules, sections of the Sexual Offences Act would be changed I thought I might be eligible for to have that, that conviction removed. But I wasn't. And then Later on in 2017, when the uh, Alan Turing ruling came, again I thought of an an opportunity to do it. Again, I was refused it. In
8: 2012, there's the Protection of Freedoms Act, which includes a scheme for disregarding some historic homosexual offenses. Really only cases, some cases of gross indecency and of buggery. Later, the pardon system came in uh, 2017 as an amendment to a policing and crime bill. And that opened up the possibility of men being pardoned for for these crimes. But ultimately, the pardon doesn't mean that much because you can't actually secure a pardon unless you already have a disregard. The biggest problem with the current system is it actually leaves out the vast majority of people that were charged with crimes related to same-sex acts and same-sex desires. So the first thing is, is right now it's only buggery and gross indecency which are disregardable and therefore pardonable. But in fact, many, many more men would have been charged with other offences, things like importuning and soliciting, which could be anything from actively soliciting someone for sex to chatting someone up. You can have a blemish on your record simply for chatting someone up, and that sticks with you as a sex crime today. The pardon and disregard systems also explicitly exclude any activity that took place in a public toilet um, because that's still illegal in, uh, in England and Wales. That's still covered under the uh, 2003 Sexual Offences Act, which explicitly forbids any sexual activity in a public lavatory.
4: I reckon that I was one of the lucky ones because I'm 66 now. I've come through my life with that. A lot of people didn't, weren't able to do that. Uh, There are people that I know had mental breakdowns. They've lost their their mental well-being. Others have committed suicide, you know. Families have uh, lost their fathers. It's been horrendous.
8: According to the government's own figures, there were some 50,000 convictions that were recorded on the police national computer, Um, but even their own researchers determined that only 16,000 of those convictions would even be eligible for the disregard that eventually came to be available. So already we should be asking questions about this, if 68% of all convictions that the government records are ineligible for any kind of redress under the system that it was creating. But then we actually get to see who got those disregards. And as of March this year, there was only 186 disregards that had been recorded as being granted. So out of 50,000 convictions, even the government identifies 16,000 that are eligible, and yet only 186 have actually been disregarded. There's continuing movement and agitation in England and Wales to expand the pardon and disregard systems to include a wider range of, of laws under which men were actually convicted and cautioned. Today, these questions are active on several fronts. Uh, There is the example in Scotland of more expansive legislation that can pardon or disregard men convicted under several different statutes. And we're going to have test cases and we're going to see how it actually works in practice. So that can really offer the opportunity of offering example and precedent for those that are advocating for the law in England and Wales to be expanded.
0: You can tell from the logbooks, volunteers are concerned about these police actions and are wanting to do something about it. And they are doing that at a time of great social change and really, really loud activist campaigns for gay liberation. And there's a poster pasted into the logbook from 1978. It's printed on pink paper and it's just uh, written in a typewriter. And the headline is, Gays are under attack, exclamation mark. Last night, a gay man was abused and assaulted in the Marlborough Public House on Tollington Place. After further insults, this time from the bar staff, all the gays in the bar were ordered to leave. And the entry goes on to to talk about the police being systematically harassing gays in the Earl's Court area and across London. And in Manchester, they've resurrected an old bylaw to prevent gays from dancing together in our own clubs, it says. And then it turns to all caps and says, we demand an end to police harassment of lesbians and gay men and it and it says if you want to join the fight against police harassment you can write to the london gay activist alliance And we know at the time there was like so many protests and all sorts of different actions against this.
1: Volunteers often didn't really have much of a dilemma about whether they wanted to protest this or not. Um, It was more about whether Switchboard put its name to anything as an activist organisation, which it later in years down the line decided that it wouldn't officially do that, that it's a non-political organisation that's open for anyone to be able to contact them. And that's what's really important. But if anything, so many of the volunteers at Switchboard throughout this period of time, especially. we were big, big on the activist scene, big on the protests, big on the marches.
0: And that's what we're going to talk about in the next episode, which is the fight for what was then called gay liberation.
1: Calls to switchboard are confidential, so to bring the logbooks to life, we've changed the callers' names.
0: The logbooks is produced by Shivani Dave, Adam Smith, and Tash Walker in partnership with Switchboard, the LGBT plus helpline.
1: If you think other people would like The Logbooks, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. These ratings and reviews really help others to discover the show. You can send us your feedback and stories to hello at logbooks.org.
0: Our music is by Tom Foskett-Barnes and our artwork is by Natalie Dotto.
1: Thanks to... Steph Dickers and team at the Bishopsgate Institute,
0: the folks at ACAST,
1: Gareth Mitchell at Imperial College London,
0: the staff and volunteers at Switchboard,
1: and all the contributors who shared their stories. 45 years on, Switchboard continues to take phone calls from 10am to 10pm every day. If you're affected by any of the issues in this podcast or need to discuss anything to do with gender identity or sexuality, you can call Switchboard on 0300 330 0630 email chris at switchboard.lgbt or instant message via switchboard.lgbt where you can also donate money or time to help